Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Women have always played important roles throughout history, yet too often they are written out of official histories. We have touched on this before in our podcast, referencing essays like Cameron Hurley's We Have Always Fought. But this cultural pattern has effectively made women invisible. We have been silenced and marginalised. V.E. Schwab's new novel, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, centres on a protagonist who is forgotten by everyone she meets. She will never be remembered. She is, effectively, invisible. So, we thought we would take this great opportunity to discuss the marginalisation of women with Victoria. So, Victoria, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, absolutely. My name is Victoria Schwab. I also write as V.E. Schwab. I'm the author of a bunch of books. I'm starting to lose track at this point, but I am here today to talk about Addie LaRue, and I'm so, so honoured to be doing it with you. And we are very honoured and excited to have you here. To kick things off, we just thought we'd ask a little bit of a, a more general question. What types of silencing and marginalization have you tended to present in your work? Because this, I, this is absolutely not the first time you sort of brought this kind of theme up in your work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think traditionally I look at kind of the othering of women in my work and the, and the othering, especially of queer women, but of, of any dissenting voice, whether I'm writing about, um, you know, teenage girls in my YA novels or about adult women in my adult novels or about, you know, about children. I'm mostly looking at this idea of what happens not only when, when girls have voices, what happens when those voices are ignored, when they're silenced and also what happens when young women have power, because I think traditionally when we give women a voice or when we give them power, we also expect them to be self-sacrificing. We expect them to be willing to surrender that power for some greater good. And so what I explore in most of my work is the idea of women who will not go quietly, women who have power and self-interest and a voice and ambition and all of these things that even when the world tells them, you know, be quiet and sit down, that they have an absolute reaction to that of, I absolutely will not. So you're trying to give us basically the opposite of what we face day to day in a way. Yeah. You're showing us that we can actually be heard. And I have to admit that that's something that I've always loved with your work. Before we, we started recording, you know, you mentioned about not being able to have seen yourself represented in books and TV, etc. And I think it's really nice for me to read works like yours and actually see someone succeeding in being heard. Yeah, I think my work is largely aspirational, right? Like I write about the kind of women I want to be and the kind of women I want to see. And that doesn't just go for women, but for all characters, but specifically I, I'm definitely always commenting on the silence or the absence, but for me, I would rather do it by showing its opposite by showing women who are not afraid to make space for themselves in the world and who insist on it. So why then Addie LaRue, who is immediately always forgotten? 
I mean, she poses the great challenge, right? And I will admit her story didn't start with the question of erasing female autonomy or female identity. Her question very much started from, I wanted to write an immortality tale and I wanted to give it a hiccup, of course. And so I gave Addie this moment of recklessness where she tries to make a deal with the devil to live forever and he refuses her because he doesn't get your soul until the deal is done. And so um, in desperation, she says to the devil, you can have my soul when I don't want it anymore. And sensing an opportunity to break her spirit, really, he grants her the ability to live forever and in doing curses her to be forgotten by everything everyone she meets. And and his assumption here is that all we care about is our reflection in other people. All we care about is our identity. And so if this young woman is unable to leave a mark, if, in effect, if I silence her presence, she will lose the will to live. And the thing that I wanted to do with Addie was to say, absolutely not. In fact, she will be so strong that she will find ways around the curse, that she will find a way to leave a mark, to be amused, to inspire and move and change the world in subtle ways. And perhaps she won't have this grand immortalization through narrative, though that's the great irony is, of course, that she does, but she will find ways to matter in the world. And so even though it's a story about silencing in one respect, I never saw her story that way. I saw a story about what kind of power what does it take in a person to find joy in life despite this circumstance, to force your way and find your way and carve your way in the world against those odds? I'm glad we're kind of getting on to talking about Addie, um, actually. And we also, you know, we also started kind of floating deals with the devil idea because obviously fantasy and any kind of speculative fiction, I feel like it does present an opportunity to well, for writers to explore different forms of social invisibility or marginalization. For example, this has been done many, many times in the epic fantasy field, more sometimes more successfully and other times less successfully, with people wanting to comment on racial invisibility and racial bias. But here we have a perfect example. We have the Faustian kind of motif, which is very, very famous, and I'm I think I'm a total fan of it. But of course, this is also you know, a motif that belongs in in the fantasy or speculative field. Um, so why did you kind of choose, why did, I don't know, what, what were you drawn to with the kind of Faustian idea? And do you think that fantasy and speculative fiction kind of as, you know, or genre in, you know, genre with a big label really, is really good for exploring these kind of themes of social invisibility? Yeah, I mean, I think genre in general, as you said, is very good at, at providing analogs for that kind of social invisibility. But specifically for, for Addie's story, I wanted to look at the opposite of the classic immortality tale. We see all of these immortality tales and Faustian bargains that deal with men. What happens with an immortal man? And they're given all this space to indulge, to exist, to live forever, to become hedonist, to simply give in to existential ennui born of the fact that they have seen everything there is to see and done everything there is to do and loved everyone there is to love. And I was fascinated by the fact that it would not be the same for a woman that, you know, Addie becomes immortal and as such, she becomes unkillable. 
but she is still so painfully cognizant of all of the limitations of being a woman in her society. She still can be hurt. She still can be misused. She still is seen as a second-class citizen, even though they also forget her. She still has to face the difficulties of the fact that doors do not automatically open for her in the world, that she cannot move freely through it for, for hundreds of years unless she masquerades as a man. And so part of what fascinated me so much was to take this really well-used trope and say, okay, but we're not looking at a massive aspect of that, which is it would not work the same for a woman. Well, I thought that was really interesting because I really love the Faustine tale. And I mean, it's it's been done in so many formats. You have um, the really tragic one by Christopher Marlowe, but you also have a lot of comedy in there. You know, a lot of people tend to turn it around, make it quite vulgar. And like exactly like you say, you've got the guys who are kind of going for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures, but Ali's very different and she goes for immortality. But I kind of wanted to ask you about the dynamics of that because in a lot of stories, particularly in vampire novels, obviously, you get immortality and beauty going hand in hand. And you get all these issues with sort of immortality bringing many problems of its own um, with the body aging. And, you know, you were talking about opening doors and doors that were more open for beautiful women or perhaps sometimes shut in the face of beautiful women. So what kind of approach did you go for with Addie and the immortality and the beauty aspect? And like you said, opening doors or providing with opportunities? I love that question because beauty and art really go hand in hand in Addie LaRue. Um, you know, Addie is, is at the peak of her youth, though ironically, when she does the deal uh, in the 18th century, she's seen as a spinster at that ripe, bold age of early 20s. But really, by modern standards, you know, she has crystallized, she has immortalized herself at, at really a peak of youth. And, and, you know, by extension, beauty and and beauty plays such a role in the story, but not in ways I think many readers would expect. Beauty, for instance, plays a role in the devil because the devil doesn't know what shape to take in the beginning because he doesn't know what she believes in because she doesn't know what she believes in. But something she does believe in is this almost archetypal love. And she has been drawing this fantasy lover since she was a child. And so he takes that manifestation, this young, beautiful French lover. And as she moves through the world, she discovers that she is not only drawn to beauty, that she and, and the devil both are kind of hedonistic in that way, drawn to art and culture and beauty and sensuality, but that this becomes the space in which she has agency. This becomes the space in which she can impact other lives because what she discovers slowly is that while she cannot be the artist, she can be the muse and she can begin to have an impact on the art and culture around her because ideas are wilder than memories. And so for Addie, beauty does open doors for her, but it's less that her beauty opens doors and makes her life easier and more that she finds a language in beauty and in art through which to move through and influence the world around her. I really like that dynamic that you chose instead of the normal Faustian idea, because again, with the guys, it's all kind of about the power and being in charge and being at the heart of it. And I love how you kind of just twist Addie so that she goes, okay, well, I can't have this, but rather than being the artist, I can be the muse. So she she does share a lot of the particular traits you would have with the guys who make these kind of, of deals. But at the same time, it's almost her her slight difference and her slight different approach to the whole thing that just makes her so much more entertaining than so many of the Faust bargains we've seen before in literature. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think the most important thing to remember with Addie perhaps is that like she did not make her deal so much for immortality as for time. And it was simply that in the moment she wasn't willing to pick a length of time. She was scared because her life was moving so quickly. So she didn't start out from a place of, I want to conquer the world. I want to you know, learn every language and see everything. She simply wanted to be free of the constraints and the confines of her role that she had been assigned as a single woman without a family in this village. And she was seen as essentially public property. And so in in essence, the reason she does her deal is not for many of those classic Faustian bargain, you know, traditions it's simply because she wants to get away from a cage and and of course she accidentally puts herself into another one i really like that the idea of trying to escape one cage and going into another um is is really interesting but i was wondering if because Addie is a woman and she is immediately forgotten and we have these links for us at least uh you know, on our podcast and what we like to talk about, <laughs> we immediately think about the general marginalization of women and, mm-hmm. and so on. But what do you think a man might have done with the same kind of curse? Because I feel like most men, especially, you know, in throughout history, would never really have experienced that idea of being silenced, being marginalized, and so on. So their experience of being forgotten or or just not being able to get things done or forge that path or leave their mark on the world yeah exactly it's it would be very different to Addie who has she sort of already experienced what that's like in in another way so what do you think that might happen I think that's a great point because I think that Addie had already experienced a degree of erasure as a woman. I do think that if a man had made this deal and been given this curse, he wouldn't have lasted very long, probably. I mean, this is the whole point, right? Is the reason that the devil is so confident in that in making this curse, he's going to win her soul very quickly is because based on his experience, mostly with men wanting to sell their souls for power, You know, and he says this in a symphony scene later on in the book that all we care about as humans is to be remembered, that really that that people are willing to sell years of contentment for moments of glory, because in the end, life is short and and history is forever. And I think he's operating on the assumptions when he makes the deal with Addie as to where her head is at. And what he doesn't anticipate is that she's going to find reasons to live that don't have to do with that traditional power set of what good is it? I feel like many men would think, well, what good is it to do these things and change the world if my name isn't on those things, right? Because that's the whole thing is Addie does many things. She simply doesn't get to take credit for them. And I feel like perhaps the more traditional masculine ideal is, well, if I'm going to do it, I better get credit for it. And I think that that would wear men down really quickly. I think it would wear many women down. I'm not to make it completely gendered. I think what makes Addie special is that it doesn't wear her down. She decides, you know, spite can carry you a few years and hope has to carry you the rest. And she finds reasons to live that are not rooted in ego. Mm. It's a your particular kind of selflessness, this kind of um, shucking of one's identity and not wanting to write on a wall like I was here. 
Exactly. I'll never forget about the fact that I was studying, I have an art history master's, like that's what my background is. It was one of the reasons that art plays a a role, but I just never forget being in a class and learning that um, somewhere in Italy, and I can't remember what cathedral it was, a Viking had visited this cathedral and basically carved runes into the marble on like one of the seats. And all it basically says is like, Yorick was here. Like that's the grand point of like, uh, of, you know, this language, this this relic being carved here. I, I have um, old stones in my house that make up the walls because it's a very old house. And there are definitely little marks carved by people who simply wanted to show like there was somebody here in this moment. I do think we have a very human desire to impress ourselves upon the world in that way. But I love that you say selfless, Lucy, because I think Addie is at once a forcibly selfless person and a passionately self-interested one in that I think, you know, when you're so alone for so long, when you have nobody to look out for, but yourself, nobody to care about, it does make you quite selfish and quite self-absorbed. And that's one of the challenges she has to face when she does start to engage in a mortal love story is the fact that her actions all of a sudden have consequences on somebody else. Uh, That's really interesting. This, the shades of, you know, because what do we mean when we say selflessness and selfishness? There does exist a dialogue between these two things, and I don't think that they are diametric opposites of each other. Agreed. I wanted to link back to you talking about how fantasy gives us a lot of like analogs for social invisibility and marginalization, etc., that we see repeatedly in fantasy. And I wanted to pick up and and kind of work that into ideas about being invisible and wanting to make our mark because it's funny to me in that the the thing I was thinking about with fantasy and invisibility, what immediately leapt to mind was one of the early episodes of Buffy where they have one of the characters at the school, she basically starts turning invisible because her peers don't recognise that she's there and she basically starts manifesting her feelings of invisibility. Yep. (laughs) Uh, which I always kind of loved, especially as as an awkward teenager. I could really relate to that. I felt like I was invisible half the time, or at least would prefer to be invisible to avoid being made fun of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an armor. Right? Yes. I mean, it's the only armor we're told as women that we have. But it's both an armor and a curse. Sure, of course, of course. When you look at the ways in which, even if you like you look, start to look at the superpowers that are given to women, you know, like look at the ways that powers reflect inward versus outward, who has ostentatious abilities and whose powers are more either healing or benefiting other people or invisibility or more passive. Like when we do give power to women, it's a passive role. Yeah. Or uh, I often think about as well that the, the women tend to have distanced abilities so they can you know send arrows or something like that they're not like the the fisticuffs as generally uh well i mean black widow yeah yes she does do the the fisticuffs but it's it's rare they're more like further away or using their mind powers or whatever emotional right yes god forbid like emotion can only be weaponized. I just think about this a lot. And I think invisibility specifically, obviously invisibility is more metaphorical in Addie LaRue, but invisibility in all its forms is a passive ability in that it's not something that I'm doing so much as how you see me. Like you don't see me. And that's a, that's a reflection on you. Like that's put in literally in the eye of the beholder, right? Like it's less that I've changed and more that you don't see it anymore. 
that's also bringing to mind mystery men and the uh, yes. the wonderful <laughs> one who can only be invisible when he's naked and no one is looking at him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I loved that. <laughs> See, I was actually thinking, and I know this is a, a terrible thing possibly to reference, I was thinking of Deadpool where you've got the exact opposite. You've got the the character of, um, is it the Rush? Oh, I can't remember their names um, because let's face it, in Deadpool, the names aren't necessarily the things you're yeah. paying attention to. But it, <laughs> she goes up against the, the really buff guy um, and the two of them oh, have, this, yeah. have this big showdown and it is fisticuffs and they're really well matched. And I really liked that kind of idea. Um, and you had, you know, it was very, very much the fisticuffs things. And you also had the young teenager who you would expect to be all kind of shy and retiring. And she is to a certain point, And then she blows a fireball at you. I quite liked, I quite liked that it was sidestepping it all. Yeah. And I will say like, it's nice. Those exceptions are, are really wonderful, especially because the counterpoint in a lot of comic book or like genre fiction is of course like fridging, right? Where a female's character's best worth to a story is as a corpse is as an emotional incentive for retribution from the male characters, which unfortunately is Deadpool too. <laughs> I mean, that's like the problem, right? Is like you, we get a beautiful thing and we never get to hold on to it for very long, it seems. But yeah, I do think it's really refreshing, but I just keep thinking of something like Umbrella Academy, which is a show that has a lot to recommend it. And there's a lot of things I like about it. But if you look at the way that the powers are doled out, there is definitely a delineation between who has physical powers, who has emotional powers, who has the more like, oh, like, God forbid Vanya gets emotional because that's when she's powerful. And, you know, of course, I can't remember the character's name. I just think of them by their numbers, who's rumor power. So it's obviously in suggestion. And I just think those powers we see as like physically manifest as in Deadpool 1, they're just so rare. And I just want to see more and more of them. I'm greedy. No, I think we absolutely agree with you 100%. I really do want to see women with just as many superpowers as the men get to have. That would be really nice. (laughs) (laughs) And when they do get their superpowers, can we put them in an outfit that's perhaps less revealing? Yeah. (laughs) My my two requests. (laughs) I do appreciate, like, I know the boys drew attention to that. There's an Amazon show called The Boys about superheroes. And I at least like the female character was rightfully horrified at being put in like a like a sub slinkier and slinkier outfit as the series went on. Like she, she it had nothing to do with her power. And she was just like they kept giving her less and less clothing. We mentioned earlier that you deal with these kinds of themes in a lot of your work. But it is this kind of idea of struggling and, okay, actually I'm going to link to an Aussie cultural myth here because uh, Australians are kind of known as diggers and and basically we were known in the uh, world wars of basically being people who never gave up and we constantly struggled. And it's this amazing whole cultural myth that all of Australia gets behind that like we fight against all odds and we keep going and we keep going. And that seems to really resonate as as a cultural identity. But I think it's something that also works really, really well in books like these. But why do you think that that like acknowledgement of someone's struggle resonates with readers so much? I mean, I think about this a lot, regardless of what I'm writing. I think about it when I'm writing villains. I think about the fact that like a struggle is not a weakness, but it's in that same vein. A struggle is a flaw, is something that we're 
is a negative in our column, right? We've got our pluses and our negatives, our advantages and our disadvantages. And I think as readers, I think a lot about this, so hopefully this makes sense. As readers, we don't look at a character and see their strengths and think, oh yeah, that's just like me. We look at a character and see their weaknesses and that's what we relate to. We just, as humans, I think especially as women, are very, very reluctant to look at a character's strengths and adopt those. When we when we see ourselves mirrored, it's usually through a flaw, a struggle, a disadvantage, a weakness. And that's not just women, but like for the sake of this conversation, I do think we're more likely to see ourselves in a disadvantage or in a struggle. And I think we can relate to that because we've seen aspects of it in our own lives. And so I think about that when writing, I, I look to the flaws, the weaknesses, the cracks, the struggles in all of my characters, because I know those are the things that the reader is going to latch on to. There's a reason that we connect to fictional characters who are fighting an uphill battle. And it's so often in our lives, we are as well. And I think it's, it's also the reason like when I'm writing superheroes that I don't write characters who are interested in world domination, because it's a very difficult thing for the average person to wrap their heart around. But on the converse of that, like we all understand jealousy. We all understand petty grievance. We all understand being overlooked or, or wanting to prove somebody wrong. And so just as I try and make those motives a little smaller and a little closer to home, I think that we see ourselves in those things that we can relate to more immediately. Uh, You said that, you know, as readers, we don't relate to characters' strengths. We relate to kind of their weaknesses and where they feel vulnerable um, and it reflects where we feel vulnerable in life. And I think that is just how empathy works, isn't it? That it's a, you know, we're drawn to people's struggles through life rather than their I feel like struggles throws successes into relief and so that's why it's very often that we we're not so drawn to the kind of um we're turned off by like the white knight the the perfect the perfect farm boy who seems like he has nowhere to go apart from to get more magically powerful (laughs) um boring. I think it's boring. And I think you're right. I think there's nothing for us to sink our teeth into. And I do think it comes down to the nature of empathy. And I think it's a really difficult balance, especially for female protagonists, because they have to have an aspirational quality as well. They have to have enough of ourselves that we say, oh, I see you and I see your struggle. And they have to push it in such a way that we think, thank you. Like, thank you for taking it and carrying it because now I feel like I can carry it too. There is always a slight aspiration for me. And I think we we talked about this at the very beginning. I don't just write about the silencing or the erasure. I write about characters who defy that silencing and that erasure because that's what I want to see. It is aspirational as a creative. It is aspirational as a human being to want to see characters who perhaps have a little bit stronger retaliatory energy than I do, you know, on tired days. We've obviously been talking about how struggles and empathy with a character can really drive a fantastic novel. But what do you think about characters that are within the mainstream or the establishment? Do you think by putting your characters in such a position, you're presenting a barrier to readers and that they've already reached there, there's nothing to struggle against, and you don't perhaps empathise with them in the same way? And do you think perhaps there are other ways that you might draw the readers into such characters? I mean, I think that comes down to, I mean, that's a craft challenge for the author. I I try to make sure that my readers empathize in different ways with all of my characters. I think I want all of my characters to feel 
inextricably human. And the fact is, I write about outsiders as the protagonists. And in order to write about outsiders as the protagonists, you really have to have a good grasp on the insiders that fit cleanly into the world that your outsiders are juxtaposed to. And so I try and create holistically characters that make sense in their own context. And I think one of the challenges I set for myself is that as a as a writer, I want you to be able to move the lens around. And if I had chosen a different character in a different position of power as the protagonist, that that character has enough meat on their bones, enough perspective, enough life experience that they would have themselves an interesting story. Because it sounds very trite to say that we're all the heroes of our own narratives, but we are. And every secondary character in my story or every establishment character is the main character of their own story. It just happens to not be the one I'm telling at that moment. So I always take it as a personal challenge to make sure that even though I want you to agree and disagree or align and not align with certain characters, I still want you to understand exactly where they're coming from. Well, I always thought that Kel in um, A Darker Shade of Magic, I always thought that was quite a good character because he's part of the establishment, but he's also part of the strange world. And although he's kind of fighting against it, he's still part of it when it comes to someone like Delilah, who is completely out of the the loop with it all. So I kind of thought that was a really interesting way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the goal then is to create create insiders and outsiders who each feel like outsiders and insiders in their own right, which is to say, Kel is very much a piece of his establishment who feels very much as though he doesn't belong. Lila is not a part of the establishment, but her personality allows her to mold to an environment very easily. And so it becomes a matter of you kind of need both of them on the page. You need people who belong and don't feel like they do. You need people who belong and do feel like they do. You need people who don't belong and don't feel like they do. And you need people who don't belong and feel like they do. And between that spectrum, you have perspectives. And I always think about this from a world building perspective in that because everything goes back to craft for me. But when you're building a world, especially as a fantasy world, it can be very difficult to decide what to notice and what to not notice. And by having an outsider character and an insider character, they're going to notice very different things. And I think applying that to the power dynamics and to the comfort hierarchies and to what is safe space and what is unsafe space and who's familiar and who's unfamiliar, all of that grants you those differing perspectives that you need to create a holistic image of a world. Well, I always thought Kel reminded me quite a lot of um, Vimes in Pratchett because you've got someone who is part of the establishment but also appreciates the flaws of that establishment and tries to be not necessarily the spanner in the works but someone who is trying to change it. And I felt it was a very different feeling in A Dark Shade of Magic to Addie's Addie's story because Addie is kind of on her own and working against the establishment and the whole idea of a Faustian bargain. And she's basically against the whole world. But when it comes to to A Dark Shade of Magic, because Kel is there and he's part of the establishment but working against it, you almost feel a a sense of hope that you don't get with Addy because you're hoping that if there are people like Kel within it, that it will change in the future, unlike just banging your head against a brick wall and trying to find a way around it. I mean, I think that's the trick of it though, right? Is like Darker Shade of Magic is much more a fantasy novel about the world and the ways in which the world is changing as well. And while Addie LaRue certainly considers that the world is changing around her, the world itself and time itself is a bit of the adversary there. And so I feel like it is meant to be in that way a very lonely novel because it's a lot easier to fight an enemy when an enemy has a shape and Addie's enemy doesn't really have a shape. Obviously, the devil is an antagonist, but... But she's fighting against really abstract concepts. And those are much harder to fight than, you know, a villain. 
Much like we are fighting the abstract concept of misogyny and (laughs) all of that day to day. (laughs) And they do take a lot bigger toll on you. And I think that's why Addie's struggle is so difficult and takes such a feat of strength, internal strength from her is that, you know, it's almost like, you know, you can run a race when you know how long the race is and that there's an end in sight. But Addie doesn't have that luxury. For Addie, it's always one more day. And so it really becomes a very internal struggle with herself and her own willingness to find the joy in it and to persevere through those bad days because of the stubborn belief that there are good ones. When I was reading some of the reviews of uh, Addie's story on Goodreads, <laughs> I must admit stubborn was a, a phrase that came up quite a bit. She's uh, yeah. she's definitely, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes you need to be stubborn to get things done. And stubbornness can just mean sticking to your goal and not being swayed from it. Yeah, I weirdly have never considered stubborn anything but a compliment. I have been called stubborn many, many times in my life. And I always said that the two tenets of Addie's identity are stubborn hope and defiant joy. And that is that is very much something that I feel she would also consider a compliment. What's the alternative in that is to yield, right? Yeah. Like she doesn't she only has two options, stop and die or live. Her act of living Again, as another word that I saw throughout on the Goodreads website was yearning. And this idea that although she's living, it's not quite, she's not quite one. And I know that's obviously the whole point of the Faustian deal. Yeah. But you've kind of got this this wonderful bittersweet character who is just stubborn and going for it, but at the same time just wanting so much more. And I think we're coming back again to the idea of struggles resonating with the reader, no matter whether that's your struggle about, you know, getting through the daily commute or a day in the office or trying to find your way out of a Faustian bargain. Well, and I think about this a lot as it relates to creativity. Obviously, as an author, like I never want to be satisfied. Like satisfied is a way toward complacency, which is an absence of creativity. And like, it's this kind of a slippery slope in my head. And so it's interesting because I think the moment Addie stops yearning is the moment she says to the devil, all right, I'm done. So for her yearning is such an essential part. And she, she has this recurrent phrase in the book. I saw an elephant in Paris and it comes to be a kind of code for her to say, who knows what I'm going to see tomorrow? I never thought I would see that. And um, and I think that's really important because I think one of the things that keeps us going in our darkest times is the small belief that I might that it might be better tomorrow. And that is itself a dissatisfaction with the present, a yearning. And I think the difference between lying down and saying, all right, I'm done, I've had enough and not is that stubborn belief that like I haven't seen it yet. I haven't felt it yet. I haven't done it yet. And what is that if not yearning? I'm going to pick up on what you said about stubborn and how you said you don't think of it as an insult. It's not meant to be, well, you won't take it that way, even if it is used often against women um, to, to sort of say that they are bad in some way. Because the thing is, when women do make themselves stand out, when we do kind of reject that enforced invisibility and marginalization, we are reviled and you know we become outcasts and it was one thing that I personally really liked in uh the near witch where you know you've got old witches they never marry they oh don't talk to them you shouldn't be hanging out with them they're clearly oh you know (laughs) but that's the thing like we we tend to get women who 
do push against this marginalization, they end up being branded as witches or being called stubborn. You know, there, there are derogatory terms that no matter how we might choose to interpret them, they're used in that manner. And I just wondered, you know, how you think stories like yours might help us move past these recurrent cultural patterns and why it's so powerful to turn names like that into something to basically keep women small, keep them quiet and silenced. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that's one of the reasons that when I'm devising my characters and their narratives, my female characters, I specifically looked for those adjectives to use as a positive. I think that self-interest is not a bad thing. I think that ambition is not a bad thing. I think that stubborn is not a bad thing. These are things that that are the strengths necessary to survive in the world. For both men and women, it's only labeled as a negative when it's a woman. And so for me, I think part of my like guerrilla strategy there is just I'm like, well, fuck that. Like I'm going to make that my protagonist every time. My protagonist is going to embody something that you have traditionally said is a negative word. And it's not going to be a negative word for this character. It's going to be the reason that they're the hero of the story. It's going to be the reason that they triumph. So I think it's like, I'm just like, well, no, I, I deny that definition, right? Like I will show you, like, go ahead and call them stubborn. They're the heroes of the story. Yeah. It really, really annoys me when you see a word used to describe a man and the same word used to describe a woman. And it's like things like, um, you know, for example, um, out, uh, righteous anger in a man is hysteria in a woman. Um, yeah. And it, it's describing the same emotion. And yet we label it very, very differently. Oh, I mean, one of my favorite things to, to think about, and by favorite, I mean, not at all. It drives me absolutely fucking crazy. Is like, I, when I was writing A Darker Shade of Magic, I wrote Delilah Bard and I decided that I would write her exactly the way you would write a male anti-hero like just to the t all of the all of the attributes right all of that selfish rakish reckless uh just just kind of all of them all of the things i saw in those archetypes and then i would make her a woman and the vitriol lobbed at that character the number of readers women as well this is what drives me so crazy who believe that this is not spo- spoiler alert. She doesn't die. Right. Who think that she should have died as penance for these personality traits who hate her because of these embodiments that I watch them turn around and give five stars to a story in which there is an exact duplicate of her. But it's a man. Oh, that is so teeth grinding. What's the title of that book? A Darker Shade of Magic. Right. There we go. Everyone has heard it clearly and (laughs) they can go out and read it because I think that sounds amazing. And that is totally what we're about here. And I just, when we started out, it was one of the the double standards leveled at gender is, it was one of the things that kind of drove us to start looking at these issues because it's simply so unfair and so shocking that it is continuing like in the 21st century. There's a reason that I write for in science fiction fantasy as V.E. Schwab. I mean, the reason that I write as V.E. Schwab is because the concept of what kinds of stories women are allowed to be endorsed for writing. I have so many fans who have come up to me at events and said, oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't know you were a woman. I never would have picked this up. 
Ouch. In like 2015, 2016, 2017, 20, like this is not 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I haven't been writing that long. And I, I, I got into it with my editor for a really long time because she wanted me to be like, no, fuck that. Put your full name on the book. And my philosophy, you can disagree with it or agree with it, is I would rather you pick up the book, read it, enjoy it, and then have to deal with whatever your biases are rather than you never pick up the book in the first place because of my name. I would rather you then have to confront that problem yourself and give me the sale. <laughs> yeah, I really wish I'd done that. Um, yeah. <laughs> you were wiser than I. <laughs> well, it's frustrating because like there is a PC answer, which is that I also write for children and I don't want the children just absentmindedly picking up some of my like more adult works like Vicious. But really like I was so astonished. I didn't think it would be that big of a thing until I actually was meeting readers who like just full out admitted to me so many of them women that they wouldn't have picked up my book. So many of them women, you say? Yeah. Oh, most of the readers who said it to me were women. Really? That is fascinating. I have friends in the bookseller industry and I've heard some guys kind of saying, oh yeah, well, I won't read that because it's by a woman, but I don't think I've ever heard of women saying that. That's quite interesting. I mean, I've heard it from both sides, obviously, but I'm always much more upset. Same way as I'm always much more upset when it's the women who hate Delilah Bard for who she is and who feel like she should have died as penance for being that way. Uh, That that somehow would have been the righteous end of her narrative. God forbid she, you know, thrive. Um, I'm always much, much more, I won't say wounded, but upset when it's the female readers who say, I don't, I don't like books by women. This is perhaps too much of a tangent, but when they say to you, oh, we feel like Delilah should have died, have you ever mm. turned around to them and said, well, what would you have done if she was a guy? Do you still think oh, she yes. would have died? And what, <laughs> and what do they say? Oh, uh, they don't have a good answer for it. They, they just say like, oh, it's different. You know, she's just, they like, they truly, I, they have never given me a solid answer for it. And the first thing I always say to them is like, and I try to let readers have their experience. The only time I ever really engage with it is if they come in like at, to me, um, comment like in an Instagram post about Delilah Bard about it, then I'm going to, I'm going to engage with it because it's on my wall. I feel like it's coming to sit at my kitchen table. I try not to be aggressive about it, but I'll ask like, would you have that same reaction? Because I did, I did code her exactly as if she were a male antihero. And and I'm always just really shocked by the vitriol of the, the kind of the rage against her. And she is super reckless, a very flawed character, extremely self-interested. And, and she does all of these things, but so do the men in the fantasy novels without anybody blinking an eye. So was it a straight gender swap? Because you say you coded her as she was a man. Did at any point you kind of go, well, actually, to make this character more believable as a female character, I'm going to have to have her do this or think this way? Or did you just kind of go, I'll just write it for a man and then just put a woman's name in it? Which, how did you kind of approach it? I didn't just like write her as Bard and then go in in the final passive revision and make her female. Like I was aware of it, but when I was building her character from the ground up, I looked specifically to give her attributes and personality facets that had been just adored in male antiheroes. So did you make any concessions to her femininity? Did you put in anything at all that you went, yeah, kind of a girl would would appreciate this, but a man necessarily wouldn't? It's interesting because the other thing about Delilah Bard is even though she's coded female, I, I do have a lot of questions about how if I had written her as a modern day character, I do think she would have been more gender fluid. I specifically at the time I was writing her, 
I wasn't out. I, I obviously had a lot of questions about my own sexuality and identity, and I really wanted a character for myself. And so I wrote her as a, a female character who's definitely less feminized than some of my other female characters and probably less embodies a lot of like the more classical female attributes. She's somewhere, she's definitely like kind of in the gray in terms of, of her own identity. But it doesn't matter. That still doesn't seem to buy her any leeway from the people who believe she should act like a woman. Well, as someone who read it and thoroughly enjoyed it, I have to say that one of the key bits of enjoyment for me was very definitely the relationship and the banter you had between Delilah and Kel. It was just so refreshing. So, you know, I I wholeheartedly agree that it's a fantastic character and so different to what you would normally get. Well, I think it also was, I never wanted her to be a love interest in that she is absolutely a love interest at some point in the narrative. But I think the concept of love interest is that sometimes you write them or they seem as though they've been written to fulfill an absence in the main character. And I wanted Kel and Lila to always feel like completely fully realized characters with or without that other person. That person is a nice bonus, but like there is no world in which Kel needs Lila to be Kel. And there's no world in which Lila needs Kel to be Lila. I think we've talked about some really fantastic and in-depth questions about gender and magic and deals and everything like that. But I have to admit, there is one question I really wanted to ask. If you had to make a Faustian deal of your own, what do you think you would ask for? And what do you anticipate would be the the problems that they were, the devil would put into it and how do you think you get around them? Because I'm guessing you must have given some thought to this when you were creating Addy. And I wondered if you had a personal answer for this. <laughs> An immense amount of thought, mostly because uh, two characters in the book try and make deals and both of them have a fear of life passing them by very, very, very quickly. And I think that was written from a point of view as someone about to turn 30 when I started writing it. I started conceiving of the story when I was 23 and I didn't write it for eight years. So when I was 30, 31, and I started actually writing it, I was just beset with this fear of time. I still am. I always have been this idea that no matter what I do, there aren't enough hours in the day. And so I absolutely think I would be tempted to ask for immortality in this way as to what I would be willing to give up for it. I I mean, that's the hard part, right? It's not as though Addie knew what she was being asked to give up in the, in the course of it. I know a lot of people who are like, Oh, but a life without other people is, is no fun at all. And I'm like, Oh, but there are so many good books out there and think about having forever to read them all. That might be quite nice. Um, I definitely, no question would make a deal with the devil to live forever. Hopefully I wouldn't have to be forgotten by everybody, but I think, you know what, even if I think the caveat is I wish I could have been able to say goodbye I think one of the great cruelties of Addie's story is that because she doesn't know what she's asking for, she doesn't know what the flip side of that deal is going to be, she never gets to say goodbye to to her family. And I do have such a close relationship with my family that I think that would eat at me. But I, I would give a lot up for immortality simply to have the time to tell the stories that I want to tell and to read the books that I want to read. Think how many series you could write if you had immortality. Oh. So many. You could reinvent yourself like every 10 years or so under a different name and write something random each time. That would be so much fun though. It would be like the vampires who have to move around to like hide their identity, except like every 50 years, they would just be a new author. Oh, now I've got, now I'm tempted. Are you tempted to make the deal or tempted to write the books? (laughs) I'm tempted to make a deal somewhere. (laughs) I think that is a perfect ending. 
thank you so much. This has been such a joy. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It was great. Thank you, Victoria. It was a blast. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.